Welcome, cycling fans. I hope you've been enjoying all the amazing guests that I've been bringing you on the podcast to date. And before we get started, I want to share with you an amazing way that you can coach with me this winter. So if you've been liking all my coaching segments, you're going to love this program. So it's my 16-week online winter road cycling training program. Say that 10 times fast. So I've been doing this program for over 15 years. It's been usually local, but now it's online, which is even more amazing because I can impact more cyclists this way than in studio. The way it works is you're going to learn valuable cycling skills, such as, have you ever asked yourself, first of all, how can I become a smoother, create a more smooth pedal stroke? Like, what are the four quadrants all these people have been talking about? And how can I get stronger on the hills? So here's the thing. It really comes down to the fundamentals and the basics skills of cycling, which when you get on your bike, you have nothing, you know nothing about. Now this is, that, and that's what I'm gonna drill into you over 16 weeks. So when you finish, you are gonna know how to create a smooth pedal stroke and be more efficient. You're gonna be climbing hills with much better technique. You're gonna be building your sprint base and your endurance base is gonna be much stronger. Now I have a special code for you. It's podcast in all uppercase to get $50 off either the VIP or the basic program. Now go to this website to check out what the differences are. Uh, basically the VIP is a much greater coaching program. So if you want more personalized coaching, goal setting, and we have a reported five to 20% increase in fitness. Can you imagine starting your spring with that kind of increase based on last year? So it's 16wkroadcycling.ca. So that's 16wkroadcycling.ca and use the code podcast to get $50 off. And if you have questions, just email me. I love to answer them. And I hope and look forward to coaching you to become better on the bike. I hope you enjoy the next episode. Have an amazing day. Welcome to Secrets from the Saddle podcast. I'm Sylvie Daewoo, your host, fellow cyclist, bike club founder, cycling coach, bike race junkie, just truly super passionate about cycling. My journey with cycling started 20 years ago when I opened a spin studio, started a women's race team, and founded a women's only cycling club called Cycle Fit Chicks. I'm super thrilled to reveal all aspects that make the world of cycling operate. I'm so excited to be able to bring you interesting people from around the world, pro cyclists, recreational cyclists, coaches, event organizers, bike shop owners, everything and everyone you need to know or ever wondered about when it comes to cycling. I know you'll enjoy this episode. Alright everybody, welcome back to another episode of Secrets in the Saddle, all things cycling podcast with your host, Sylvie Dew. And I am in utter, um, I can't even express my gratitude for having this amazing woman here. She came from a referral of a referral and this is Jill Yesco. Yesco. I, I'm bad at last names. Just, I have to admit that. <laughs> But the reason why she's, and if you are familiar with this name, 
she has she's a journalist and a filmmaker um she has also um she's a former cyclist who participated uh represented the u.s united states in the 1983 world university games and competed in the olympic trials jill's films include tainted blood the untold story of the 84 olympic blood doping scandal so if you haven't seen that i just watched some trailers go check it out on youtube um or it's a, available on amazon so you can watch it there um and the film broken trust which talks about athletes abuse the um athletes abuse exposed so that's with all the gymnasts i believe so but we're going to be talking about those uh, Jill's writing um, has appeared in World uh, Women's Sports and Fitness, Shape, Fitness Swimmer, and numerous other magazines. She's an author of two unclaimed, uh, unclaimed crime uh, fiction novels and has been filmed or been part of O, the Oprah magazine. She's a fellow, um, I hate these intros are really <laughs> so you have to bear with me. I'm trying to be cool. Um, she's a fellow at the Center of Sports Communications and Media, Moody uh, College of Communications and the University of Texas. Jill, I am so excited to have you here. Like, I am honored to have you as a guest. Hi, the, the pleasure is all mine. <laughs> Hi. Thank you. Thank you. Um, now, I always love to get started as to how you got into cycling, because I know that we're going to, you know, go and talk about the films that you've filmed and what, you know, caused you to, uh, moved you to create those films and getting into filmmaking. So start how you started becoming a cyclist and then how you got into that profession. It's a good, and it's a good story too. Oh, I can't wait. Okay. And it's <laughs> I love good stories. Eric Hyden's fault. Remember Eric Hyden? No, he... but <laughs> I will look at him. Okay. So I was watching the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, and I watched Eric Hyden win all five gold medals. He swept all of the speed skating events. And Eric is really cute. <laughs> no, um, right? He had the uh, brown hair. He was like this, aw, shucks, Midwestern boy. And he was an amazing athlete. Uh, and so I had a little crush on Eric. Mm -hmm. And a few months later, I saw that Eric Hyden was now a bike racer and he was going to be participating in the Tour of Somerville, which is one of the oldest uh, bike races in the U.S. It's a criterium. And it was about 10 miles from where I was living. So I was like, oh my gosh, I jumped on my like 45 pound Schwinn Varsity, bright yellow. I pedaled, I don't know how long it took me to go 10 miles on that like crate. And I met Eric Hyden. I met him, he was getting a leg massage and I was like, oh my gosh, Eric, I'm your biggest <laughs> fan. And he said to me, cause I, I had cycled over, he's like, are you here to race? And I thought, I said, no, no, I'm just here to watch. And then I watched the women's race and I thought, I could do that. I could do that. Mm, and I, I love it. 
started training. I got a better bike. I found a club and I started training. And the next year I was on the line there at Somerville. And that, um, that, that's the story. That's did how you I, see him again? I did. Like, I actually hey, you remember me. I did. I saw him a couple of years later when I was, um, you know, much more into racing and knew what I was doing. And I went up to him and I'm like, this is all your fault, Eric. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what oh, you do? Could you turn <laughs> me into a bike racer? Damn it. <laughs> oh my gosh. But I can, um, so, <laughs> so Jill, how did it feel on your first start line in a crit? Cause I was just talking to some girls last night in my club and we're talking about doing a crit it's at the end of the season, however. Um, but, and I, I'm like, it's going to be the hardest race you've ever done. And so how did you feel and how did you feel afterwards? <laughs> you know, I don't think I remember my first crit, but I, what I do remember is right from the get-go, it was like, I was just born to be on a bike. Like it just mm. felt, it just felt right. You know, like this is perfect for my, my body and my attitude. And it was like rediscovering that freedom, like going on training rides, especially in more rural areas was like rediscovering that freedom you had when you were a little kid and you like maybe rode farther than you thought you were going to ride and testing my body out in new ways. Um, I had been a track and field athlete in high school and college, and I was like super skinny and just um, my, then my body changed and I became much more muscular and I just couldn't run as fast. And I had to find a sport that would suit my body type and cycling was, was it. The muscle does it to you every time. Muscle. Yeah. Yeah. Muscles. <laughs> yeah. I know. I was talking to the ladies because I remember my first crit. I spent eight years racing. Crits are by far my favorite uh -huh. of the events just because the strategy, the speed, the, you know, like just, uh, I don't know, the, the closeness. It's over in an hour. <laughs> Maybe yeah. it's because it's just over in an hour. Okay. No, but yeah. And I was just explaining to the girls, I go, I can't fluff it up. It's going to be the hardest race you've ever done. And, you know, like, but that scares people. I'm like, but it is. I mean, I can't make it, you know, like you'd be saying like, Sylvie, you didn't tell me it was going to be so hard. I go, well, you know, <laughs> so what prompted you? So, um, moving on in your cycling career, you, um, started cycling for the United States and that's what brought you to worlds. So how is, um, how'd that feel? Um, so it was the World University Games and I was really flattered to be selected for, for that team. We were up in Edmonton, Canada and- Oh my gosh, um, really? Yeah, that's where they held it. Wow. And it was really like a much bigger event than I thought it was gonna be. They had uh -huh. um, you know huge opening ceremony and Prince Charles and Lady Diana were there. And what? they were in our um, athlete village. I don't know where I was that day, but I, um, I'm still in touch with some of the, the teammates. And they're like, we, the highlight was meeting Charles and Diana in the athlete's village. I'm like, where was I? Was I training? <laughs> was I sleeping? How in did the bathroom. I miss that? <laughs> How did I miss that? Oh, no. Really? Yeah. So was it around their, their velodrome? 
Yeah, they had events in the velodrome. The uh, okay. road course was, um, I guess there's a river going through and there was like, yeah, yeah. It was like uh-huh. Montreal, the Montreal Olympic course, down and up. Um, there were, um, I remember Greg Luganis was there and that was very tragically, I think what people remember that uh, World University, that university had uh, for was um, a diver died. He hit his head on the um, platform and, and died. Yeah, um, unfortunately. But the, the racing was really fun and it was so cool to meet, you know, all of this is pre-social media. So we were only getting our news about other racers, either word of mouth or through Velo News, you know. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, that's who you are. It's so nice to meet you because I wasn't really a great road racer, even though they put me in the road race. And so I was meeting all of these like West Coast people. And it was it was really lovely to meet the other athletes from around the world. And Sylvie, I had gone to, not not as a competitor, but I went to the 76 Olympics in Montreal just to watch. I was- Oh, okay. Yeah, and I was like, I'm not that old. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I didn't realize like your career had started so early because I'm like 76, I was in uh, just, uh, I don't know, four years old. (laughs) I was a teenager, I was a teenager. Yeah, uh, I remember I took the bus up from New Jersey. Okay. And uh, yeah, I got to see most of the track and field events. I saw Bruce Jenner, the then Bruce Jenner, win the decathlon. (laughs) A man, Bruce Jenner. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, And was a man um, back then. Bruce, I mean, it was, it was amazing. It was so inspiring. I think already then the wheels were turning. Like, I really want to be as good as I can be as, as an athlete. I hadn't yet discovered cycling. It was, you mm-hmm. know, the Eric Hyden thing hadn't happened yet. <laughs> well, it probably happened at a good time. So how far did you go in your cycling career? So um, I went to, uh, I didn't live that far from um, the Belgium and Trexler town that time. So I raced a lot there. I, I lived in, this is a good dovetail, I know what we're going to talk about. I moved to Los Angeles in 1983 and trained there when I, and everything was already getting supercharged because the Olympics were coming. And so I hadn't realized this, but like prior to an Olympiad, um, already athletes were coming months in advance to, to train there and to ramp up. So the quality of the racing was so high in Los Angeles. Like I had been a good like regional rider. When I got to LA, I was just getting like spit out the back and I'm like, oh my God, what's that? Yeah, what? whole other level, right? <laughs> it was, I'm like, what is going on here? And the thing that really helped my training is going out and um, consistently going to the Encino Velodrome. And I remember at first I would just be able to do like, one or two kicks at the beginning of the pace line there. And then eventually I got stronger and was able to like do all the workouts. And then um, we would do this big training race around the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. It was big, flat, kind of like for your American listeners, um, very similar like to the course at the National Capital Open, which goes around the, um, the ellipse in DC, big, long, 
huge oval, but the pace very, very high. And I remember that second year, I was like, it was first race, I was near the front. I'm like, look how strong I am this year. <laughs> and we were setting up for the sprint and somebody clipped me. And because I was near the front, I mean, these are, this is like more than 50 riders in, in this. Um, I went down and I just remember everybody piling up on top. It was like just oh my gosh you know it's like every Kurt Rogers nightmare and yeah. when I finally got everybody off me my arm was just like Wah. I had broken my arm and after that I just felt really discouraged and I moved I moved back east um, but I already had my arm healed quickly and I had quite a good bit of fitness from all of that but as as my writing career went on, I realized I'm getting better, but everybody is like, it's like, ah, ah, yeah, ah. yeah, yeah. It yeah. never bridged that gap, even though I was chasing as hard as I could. Oh, so I, I became painfully aware of my limitations. And also my, um, my focus was changing by then that mm -hmm. I was looking beyond cycling and just couldn't put like couldn't put all my eggs in one basket. I was in grad school and that was already taking away some of my focus. And it was like this, I'm like, I just can't spend all my time and energy driving all over the place or flying all over the place to track meets and crits. And um, so already I was getting a little distracted. So I retired in 1988, which is probably about, about a good time for me to, to stop racing. Just stop racing. You didn't stop riding. Well, I went to, I entered a <laughs> PhD program. Yeah. Oh I, God. Yeah. <laughs> I did. And that was like my version of racing. I, I like put everything down and just put all my energy into, into studying. And, um, really after that, like put riding down for a good long time and only have really ramped it up like in the past three years. And now I'm, and now I'm like, this is great. Like, I really miss yeah, I don't, like, uh, No pressure. <laughs> I still put pressure on myself. I yeah. <laughs> I no race get pressure and training pressure, I mean. Why are bikes so expensive? <laughs> oh, gosh, I know. A great time to get back into it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Good timing, Jill, right? Yeah, yeah. So what did you go to school for? Was it film filmmaking no. or uh, no? Oh, okay. not at all. I was a geography major. What? what a geology? You? Geography. Geography. Okay. Okay. Why did you pick geography? Sorry, I had to ask. Because geographers, we say geographers have a harmless excuse for being anywhere. We, our turf is the <laughs> world. I was just naturally very curious and I wanted to travel and I thought, maybe a geography major, that seems like a good, uh, good match. So that was my undergraduate major. And then while I was still bike racing, I got a master's in geography and really wanted to be a professor. So then, then I went back from my PhD and um, yeah, uh, unfortunately did not finish writing my dissertation and there's not much you can hit the wall, right? As yeah. Are you going to finish? Are you going to bother? No. No. <laughs> I can't remember geography now. <laughs> like that's that's over now. But all right. Uh, so yeah. Oh, go. Sorry. Go ahead. No, that 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 was it. 
Wow. Yep. Okay. So then what landed you into filmmaking? Like, so how did that completely go like complete 90 degrees in another direction? What inspired you to, you know, become a journalist and, and, uh, and, and start exploring this? Cause this is all about the same time, right? Um, uh, 84, this is in the, the 90s. So when you don't finish writing your dissertation, when you're all but dissertation, it absolutely equips you for doing, like you have no job training. <laughs> like, yeah, washed up academic. That makes you uh, No, don't say that. <laughs> no, I have to reinvent myself. And I'd always been, had a, a talent for writing. So I began freelancing articles and that led to a career in, in journalism, freelance, uh, freelance journalism. Um, then I became a reporter. And then journalism, you know, it's not in good shape. And I kind of saw the writing on the wall there. And I went into back then. This for was now. Um oh gosh, this was like 15 years, 15 years ago. Journalism was already on shaky ground. So I went into media relations and higher education, which was kind of a nice balance. I know this is like not to do the cycling, but it, it was, it brings a lot of former reporters go into like media relations, right? Because we understand what, you know, what stories reporters like. And I worked for a number of colleges and universities. And it was while I was working for one that my boss said, you know what, you guys, I'm going to teach you how to shoot and edit videos so you can add that to your the PR portfolio that we're pushing. And my colleagues were like, didn't want to learn. They're like, Ugh. and I know I'm like, this is great. <laughs> I'll do it all. I'll do <laughs> yeah, it all. That's right. Just give it to me. <laughs> wow, really? They didn't jump on it? Uh, it was like, Ugh too technical I don't understand it there's too many dials <laughs> and then um I I took some filmmaking classes and I'm like this is such a wonderful way of storytelling and then I, that bit was in my mouth and I just ran with it so that that's how that's how it happened it was a very it was a late onset of filmmaking as I tell people well I think you've done some great stuff considering um, so then how did you start targeting this particular film, like the blood doping? Did that start to like throw you back into your cycling world when you're seeing what was happening with the Tour de France? And you're like, I think I, you know, I need to, um, put this into a film. Like, talk about that, Jill. Well, that actually began, you know, so when I was living and racing in LA, I attended oh. the 84 Olympics and watched, okay. you know, watch the races, right? Mm -hmm. And again, we didn't have social media, so you had to rely on either uh, newspaper coverage. And I was so excited when Alexi Graywall kind of unexpectedly won the men's road race. You know, he beat Steve, Canadian Steve Bauer in the sprint, and that was just unbelievable because Bauer, Bauer was such a strong sprinter. And then I watched the men's uh, velodrome events and they snatched up so many gold medals. It was, it was really just unbelievable. And then stuff started to come out in the press. It wasn't widely circulated about 
possible blood doping. And that wasn't a thing back then, really. You know, we didn't have Lance Armstrong. Our antenna weren't tuned to any doping. And I wasn't a journalist yet, but I like somehow this got tucked away. And I'm like, what, what, what is this about? And I wanted to know more. And I, I always thought, you know, I need to explore this. And it just, and then when I got into filmmaking, and I thought, and, and it post Lance Armstrong, everyone's like, oh, Lance, the first doper. I'm like, not exactly, not exactly. So uh, that began my, uh, my odyssey into making Tainted Blood. I knew that there was more to the story than had been written in 84, 85 and, and subsequent. And so I began tracking down and contacting and because we had social media then and through the Facebook and whatever grapevine, I began contacting people and- this is great, easy way we, to get everybody. Well, those who wanted to talk to me. Um, right. But my idea was, again, having good training as a journalist, you know, I didn't have an ax to grind, but I wanted to delve more into this and create a more holistic view of, of what happened. And I knew the clock was ticking because this happened a long time ago. And a lot of the people, well, in fact, one of the principals had questions? passed. Before Sorry. you get in, when, can I just ask you a quick question um, yeah. before you dive into all that? When did you publish Tainted Blood? When did the film come out? Yeah. Uh, I think the film came out four years ago. Oh, like 2016? I think so. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. all right. So you started it and it was wait. maybe. Okay. You know, it's on, you can, it's on Amazon Prime. Yeah. I'll go look it out. I just, um, I just didn't have it on my, on your sheet. Anyway, sorry. I didn't mean to jump, in, but I just wanted to know, cause I was like, when did you went back and you really had to start researching back to those. So yeah. So continue. I'm yeah, I spent about, before we even picked up a camera, I spent about six months just, you know, here's, like you ask, oh, these are such different skills. Not really. I put my graduate school hat on. <laughs> six months. Just Good thing. Studying, take, taking notes. I have, I mean, a huge dossier because um, I, I really wanted to get my facts straight and understand what, you know, what we had, what was going on. And so, um, and then I went about contacting people and was really surprised. I thought so many years have passed and so many more egregious doping scandals have ha happened that the participants who, who did the blood doping would be eager to tell their side of the story. And that turned out not to be the case. That's, that was like the most surprising thing. I was like, well, Hmm. How do you make a story then when, you know, 50% of the people won't, won't talk, won't talk to you. But fortunately they had, some of them had gone on record and done interviews. Uh, NBC had some footage. Uh, so I endeavored to put in as much archival footage to tell their stories as possible. And I uh, was very fortunate to make contact with Locus, who is a journalist with uh, the Allentown Morning Call newspaper, a longtime cycling journalist who had covered 
the Olympics and all the new, a lot of the principles from the Trexlertown Velodrome. And he was sort of my, my stand-in. He's like, well, when I interviewed X, they told me this. So that, as a filmmaker that was a, and journalist, that was a huge challenge was how to make this not a one-sided film. And maybe there are some who watch it and go, oh, it's like completely one-sided, but I don't, if you watch the whole film, I don't think you'll come away with that, with that opinion. So, okay, so, cause you have Lance Armstrong in there. I mean, I just saw the trailer. Yeah, um, I didn't interview Lance, I interviewed Betsy Andreu. Well, I saw that you had Oprah in there who yeah, Oprah. Him. We have a, uh, <laughs> How can you lie to Oprah? And Oprah gives him this like we we you know the interview is quite long, but we just use that snippet where the react shot from Oprah is just like right. Well, let's just ask your opinion on him because. I mean, seven years, I know this is, we're not going to go down that rabbit trail, but a uh, rabbit hole, but seven years and because he had survived cancer, like everybody has their own opinion. I'm like, I don't know. Was he really doping or was a part of, you know, his chemo treatments? Like, was it something that he was helping get What is your opinion about, about that? That Lance doped, like unequivocally that he, he doped. And more to the point that he was like seven years, like consistent doped, like to get him to that point. Cause it's a lot of strategy too. It's points. Um, well, yeah, it I mean, it wasn't just, just Lance. It was the coercion for the, the rest, the rest of the, the team. Mm -hmm. But I want to go back to tainted blood because I think okay. this is sort of the essence of it. And it does dovetail into Lance Armstrong. Mm-hmm. So I want to point out that very important thing at the time of the 84 Olympics, blood doping was not illegal. Okay. We didn't have oh, one of the okay. world anti-doping, right? It was not technically illegal. Should it have been done? Probably not. And I'll mm -hmm. tell you why, because the Russians and the East Germans who were our biggest competitors didn't even come to 84. By far the U S had the, the strongest team. You know, we were going to win those medals anyway. They did not need to take the risk in blood doping. And if you're going to blood dope, there, there is definitely a protocol, a, a hygienic and, you know, efficient way to, to blood dope, right? I mean, and I'm not a doping expert, but I'm a little bit of an expert on how to make a film about the 84 blood doping scam. <laughs> right? That's my area. Give us your expertise. I want to hear them. Yeah, so <laughs> you, you find out. You draw your own blood out, right? And then you spin it down and then reinfuse it. You, the, you take the plasma out mm -hmm. and then reinfuse it at a specified time before your event, preferably an endurance event, right? So what had happened in 84 is that they, they didn't, from what I understand, didn't have time or for whatever reason, they weren't, the athletes weren't, in some cases were not using their own blood. They were using a close relative's blood and reinfusing whole blood, which is really dangerous. And it was done in a motel room uh, just outside the velodrome. And some of the riders got really sick from it. And as you see in the, the film, 
I did interview Tom Dixon, who was the sort of official, unofficial team doctor at the time, not, not the doctor who had directly supervised the blood doping. That's Dr. Herman Falsetti, who I did not interview because he <laughs> was like 100 years old now and was in California. But um, there was no need to take that kind of risk. Were the athletes coerced by their very charismatic coach, the late Eddie, Eddie Borjevitz, Eddie B, to do that? That was really what I was trying to get at. What was in the athlete's head? You know, did you do this because you were told to do it? You thought it would give you an advantage? Was it, let's take one for the team? Um, and that, that's where... I'm so sorry that the athletes did not want to be interviewed, but you'll you'll see from archival clips, there are some who did talk to uh, NBC television about that. Um, and afterwards, the athletes were really, who did the blood doping were like really vilified. You know, they suffered a huge backlash from it and felt guilty about it and really kind of suffered. It really tainted their, their medals in some cases. And I felt very, very bad for the athletes. And that's where I thought that maybe they would want to, want to talk about it and, and they didn't. Um, but one more thing I'll say is I did manage to track down the gentleman who was then the head of United States Cycling Federation, which is now US, called USA Cycling. And what he said was that that he, they, they knew in advance that a proposal had been put forth to blood dope. And even though it wasn't technically illegal, they said, don't do it. Don't do it. It's not worth the PR risk. And it was done, <laughs> it was done anyway. And it brought right. shame and scandal to U.S. cycling. I mean, something like that today would have just really absolutely blown up. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Wow. So everyone, we need to go and watch this film. Um, I think so. <laughs> um, well, of course, we don't need to go watch the film. Um, and not just for cycling. I think it's a film that it's a conversation starter for for any for any sport. Like how yeah. how how far will you go? You know, how much autonomy do you as an athlete have when the rest of your team is saying do it or you know something is risky? Um, do you follow your own moral moral code? Do you listen blindly to your to your coach? You know, what um, what is what is the code of ethics here and responsibility? Yeah, because I've heard lots of stories about junior racers in Europe, like taking drugs and you know, bathrooms and gas stations and things like that. And how the, you know, not the neighborhood, but just store owners don't want them around because they just, they know that's what they're doing. I don't know. I've, I just hear this stuff through the grapevine, but it doesn't. And that's like, you know, what, five years ago, 10 years ago, that's happening. I mean, it's, it's definitely still going on. Riders still get popped for, for blood doping. It has not not come to come to an end but just that this happened sort of discouraging like this happened so long ago and so many kind of worse doping scandals have have happened since then but that's be is sort of like you know 
almost the precursor to, to Lance Armstrong, you know, like once you get the ball rolling. And in cycling then, as now, we're a small community. Everybody know, kind of yeah. knows somebody, right? It's not like mm -hmm. there are any secrets. Mm -hmm. That's true. So now, how long, it, how long did it take you to put that, that film together? And did you have like a team or is it just, just you? No, no. Um... <laughs> I know my limitations. <laughs> I hope you brought like right. a ginormous team together. I just, um, I did a little bit of filming. I filmed just some B-roll at uh, Worlds were held in Richmond, Virginia. And I, I drove down and did a little B-roll filming. But otherwise, you know, I had a cam camera crew. Um, we filmed interviews all around the country. Um, I had to stop to, you know, one of the big things about make filmmaking is it's really expensive and you have to raise a lot of money. And I was still working full time because hadn't been able to raise all the money. So I had to self-finance part of it. So I was working full time and making this film. So I think from like the actual time I started researching it to it actually got put up on, um, on Amazon was about four years. And that's not that much time, really. Is that the only place you can watch it? On, on It's on Amazon Prime. Yeah, I've done screenings around around the country, too. But um, you can on uh, Netflix, it's only Amazon. It's, on, it's only Amazon. Okay. Um, can I, I have DVDs if you want to buy them. <laughs> oh, my God. I'll go to Amazon. Yeah. So, all right. Now, moving from that, uh -huh. you then, so what was, when that was done, you then decided, when did you decide to do the next one, the broken trust about the, uh, ap the athletes abuse uh, scandals? Yeah. When did, when did that one just like, uh... when did you decide to put that one together? Well, I knew, I definitely knew I wanted to make, make another film and having done Broken Trust, I saw, um, I had a much better idea, like for my sophomore film about how to go about things, right? Like, better idea about how to raise money and be more efficient in my filmmaking. And so this is just about the time, I mean, I had remembered, I'd been watching Olympic sports forever, you know, ergo my trip to Montreal in 1970. <laughs> right? Forever. <laughs> um, and I remember like watching gymnastics on TV and they would occasionally say, and here's our team physician, Larry Nasser. So I, I kind of knew who the guy was and then started reading about what was happening. But I already knew that another entity was going to make a much more in-depth film about Larry Nassar and the, the gymnast and the gymnast than I could make. But I also knew that this can't just be limited to gymnastics. You know, this is going on across sports. And my idea was to make, um, make a film that would interview survivors, right? Who, who were older, who had had time to process what had happened and had gone on to become advocates for, for change. And so um, unlike cycling, where I actually kind of knew people or knew people who knew people, 
I didn't really know that many people. So I um, started, I actually just started cold calling people who I, I started reading and seeing, ah, oh, this person, this person. And then um, I was very fortunate. One of my cold calls was to Jessica Armstrong, who was a former elite gymnast who I had read about in the paper and she jumped on this project. She's like, I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it, let's go. And so I interviewed athletes from gymnastics, speed skating, um, figure skating, uh, canoeing, sprint canoeing. Um, what am I leaving out? Another sport, I can't remember. Um, and, and I had one male athlete who very courageously appears in the film. And my idea was, again, I wanted the older athletes because if you go online, you can watch the, um, the victim, they're called victim statements, um, that uh, like almost a hundred women who were abused by Larry Nassar um, said at his sentencing and they're heart-wrenching. It goes on for over an hour and you just can't watch it. It's, it's too much. And so many of them are so, so raw that I thought if I do a film like that, it's going to be unwatchable. Like it'll just be almost like, you know, porn, right. In, in a way. So that's why I wanted my film to be a little more solutions oriented. Like I have survived, I have survived imperfectly. And here, here's how I'm overcoming it. And here's what we need to do to do better. And so I, I, this film is only a half an hour long and I made it shorter because I wanted this to be for an educational market. And we have a study guide that goes along with it. And the film um, can be, um, has been adopted for courses at colleges and universities oh, and nonprofits, awesome, more as a, as a teaching tool. And that's what I mean when I said I, I wanted this, I had a much more concrete idea of how to make this film and where I wanted it to be. More importantly, I had to get this film out quickly because of the interest in Me Too and Larry Nassar. So this film took a little less than two years to, to do. And um, very, very grateful. I want to add- Quickly, I was not expecting two years. Like, I guess that's, the norm or that that is a quick production of was, a film it was a quick turnaround um right. and um i also want to add that not everyone in the film i want that when sexual abuse happens or any kind of abuse especially in a team setting it, it has that ripple effect so one of the athletes um speed skaters her her rival was sleeping with the team coach and as a result of that, there was a lot of favoritism and she was left off an Olympic team. And so, um, you know, the consequences of abuse are, are, are far more profound than you, um, you know, than, and then somebody's direct experience. And I wanted that to come, come through too. Like it really is something that it really affects everyone from the parents who are maybe don't say anything. So that film has been um, really, um, I'm, I'm in a way weirdly prouder than that. I'm proud of Tainted Blood because it was like such a labor of love. And I think that um, Broken Trust is, is a film that's gonna move, move, 
contribute to the canon that's moving the dial, you know. Uh, and 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 um, for years, for years to come. I hope so. I feel like we can make more progress with athlete abuse than we can with eradicating doping. I feel like doping is like cockroach, right? Stamp one out, you're going to have another. Yeah, it's, yeah. Here we can we can make some progress. Yeah. Did you find that um, it was easier to get more people to make testimonials or statements uh, for your broken trust video, uh, a movie or, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so because of the um, kind of um, momentum of, of me, me too. Um, and I also, you know, went, um, like you, I'm sure everyone watches documentaries. My theory is that I didn't need, I also didn't need to interview thousands of athletes, hundreds of athletes. I needed just a couple of, of key people to raise points. And I'm so indebted to Craig Marisi, who is a male figure skater, who his guys don't wanna talk about this. And when we interviewed him, he, he really had not spoken very publicly. And I cold called Craig, I remember him saying, oh, what the hell, let's just do this. And I went up to interview him and he's like a little different, you know, like when you're interviewing somebody who's been like sexually abused, you kind of don't want to just go up and shove a mic in their face. And I didn't have a lot of time to kind of sit down and get to know Craig. And so I said to him, listen, we'll take breaks, whatever you want to say or don't want to say, it's, it's all fine. And Craig just was brutally honest about what happened to him and said it on camera. And I remember my crew and I were just like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And- um, Air, uh, Tidbit? Because um, when I'm thinking of a sexual abuse, it's, uh, it's always about what happened, like for women. It, right. it rarely do I think that men have been affected. I'm, and I'm just being honest. Um, maybe it's because, but I, I know men have been affected, but it's not like it's as prominent as women. Can you share a small tidbit? Well, I'll, I'll say this, and this was one of the points raised. When, I don't think we said this in the film, but we've done a lot of uh, like online discussions with the athletes afterwards where you know they add more. They said that one of the, the problems is when we say sexual abuse, kind of leaves a lot to like, what does that mean? Like, did he or she put the hand on the breast? So Craig talked about how, um, you know, in, in much more graphic detail about what his abuse consisted of, you know, and, and people need to hear that, you know, it wasn't just, oh, the coach caressed my head. This is what happened to me very graphically over and over and over again. And um, we actually have two cuts of the film for, for uh, high schools, we, we kind of cut that out, you know, um, but for an adult audience, I, I feel it's very, very important to kind of to hear this because it, it creates no doubt in your mind about, you know, the abuse that, that's happening. Yeah. So that came from a coach, not like a, um, a teammate. It came from a coach. Yeah. 
Anyway, male so or female? It was a male coach. Male coach. Yeah. Yeah. And, but can I want to just say this because I know we're going to talk about this. So after, no, having made, after having made Tainted Blood, which was a <laughs> difficult film to make, and I took a lot of crap from that film because the, the coach of that team was very beloved and people, a lot of people did not appreciate me making that film. They felt like I was blaming the cyclist or the coach. And that really was not my intention at all. And then making this film, which is like super heavy. And um, dip, I mean, I have not been sexually abused, but just this filmmaker was really, as like, oh my God, these stories and, and the courage of these people and just, and I heard, there were so many more stories I heard that were not, in, you know, I didn't include in the film. I'm like, okay, the next film I make is going to be about like how to groom a poodle or something, you know, it has to be, <laughs> you know unicorns and rainbows and like ice cream sundaes. That's, that's can't, right. Like, can't, like no something, more. <laughs> something a little lighter, you know? A little bit lighter, much more fun, where every no one is going to like send me nasty emails or like troll me on social. Oh, God. Well, you know what? Sometimes I think you've it's part and parcel of the, the you know, yeah. the job. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, so. So you got that. So when did that one go out? That must have been more recent because I saw oh. Ali Reisman in there in your trailer. Yeah, that's like two, uh just maybe about two years ago, maybe a, maybe not a year ago, maybe. I'm sorry, I just kind of can't like two, remember. 219 about? Um, last year, I think, because that film I got. That was 220. Um, I have an educational distributor, and that film is available through Canopy, K-A-N-O-P-Y. Canopy is, um, I, I, I think you might have it in, in Canada. So Canopy is available through all US, pub, most US public libraries and colleges. So if you have a library card, you can um, access it. So it's at no, no fee, no fee and colleges, universities can, can pick it up. Most of them have subscriptions to Canopy, but you know, if anyone's interested, just contact me directly and I will put them in touch with how to access the film and the study guide because we really didn't want cost to be a barrier to to getting this this film out that would almost be a great thing for as a you know like as a coach and to show it to a team would you absolutely. say absolutely yeah so and and for all of them to think about you know like um you know if, if anything come across you know just as a knowledge base because it oh anyways I mean, I've got kids and don't tell me it doesn't cross my mind, but you know, like anyways, it's always good to educate your kids so that they have a better understanding as to what is right and what is wrong and, uh, and have those conversations, parents. Mm -hmm. um, so, all right, moving along, moving you along. have some current projects. Speaking of new film, maybe it's not grooming poodles but i think it's gonna be just as good <laughs> maybe not as light as that but tell us about your new project oh yeah i'm so excited about this i'm so excited yes 
Okay, so, 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 so. It seems like I'm stuck in the 80s, but that really was my decade. I do love the it's 80s. when everything started. It did. It was like, it was like the best decade. Maybe this de decade will be the best. 80s were the best. I'm an 80s, I'm an 80s child, but I was in high school in the 80s and stuck in the 80s. Not my hair, though, but. <laughs> but tell us about it. A lot of good stuff. Well, it was sort of the heyday of cycling in the U.S. And I remember, again, reading in Velo News about the, uh, the, the Tour de France, the Women's Tour de France, the Tour de France Feminine, that, was hap that happened in 84, that Marianne Martin won. And again, it didn't get as much press because of the, um, you know, the inaugural Women's Road Race at the 84 Olympics, which was won by Connie Carpenter Finney. Rebecca Twig got second. It just happened that the women's tour kind of coincided with the Olympic road race, right? But I just like devoured this. I'm like, oh my God, women are riding the tour. And what was remarkable was they were riding the same courses as the men on the same day, uh, albeit the courses were, were shorter. And um, they rode a few less um, stages, but I was like, oh, and I followed it as best I could and they had it from 84 to 89 and then it stopped and there have been various smaller iterations of it but nothing like the 84 to 89 tours so again this was tucked away and now with two films under my belt and wanting to do the poodle grooming film kidding <laughs> so that's way boring <laughs> I'm not doing that and and the fact through social media I know uh, I've gotten to know uh, and quite a few of the women who have ridden in those tours I'm like I'm making a film about that because those women cannot be forgotten and this was amazing extraordinary thing that they they did this cannot be relegated to um you know the dustbin of history so that that is the current the project in progress thank you covid for like throwing a wrench in that machine yeah oh my god i got all this free time i know <laughs> I, get time. I can't leave my room great yeah that's right <laughs> what am i gonna do mm, start researching start calling i've been but yeah because yeah go ahead Sorry. No, I was, um, I actually interviewed a lady here in Ottawa who participated in the 84 women's uh, Tour de France. And I, I had no idea. Who? Debbie Jensen. She's from the, she was on the Canadian team. Because I know it was like, it was like, um, it wasn't teams, teams. It was like countries that right. were racing right. at that time. So she just happened to get recruited to it's just funny because like I know her through one of the cycling clubs here we just got to stop and she's like yeah I I, I used to race I'm like mm, how long ago because she's a little older than me and she's uh -huh. like well you know I I did the women's tour de France and I was like what <laughs> I'm like what and I, I okay we have to talk about that and and then like you know and then uh Miriam was talking about it and I was like well then you must know her so I connected her well through the the podcast of the episode and it was just like wow I like I had no clue that there was a woman's tour de France in 84 but it all makes sense 84 83 and I didn't realize it went as long as 89 I thought it was just 84 85 
because I think that's when she was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, she had a, a, you know, interesting experience. I'll send you the episode. Yeah. Uh, connect you with her. Oh, absolutely. Um, but yeah, she was really open about it. And she's just getting back into cycling now because she kind of left cycling with a bad taste because of the team and, and everything. Then she came back here and opened up a vegan restaurant <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was op- like around the university here, Ottawa U, that was open for, she had like for 25 years. Crazy, you know? Um, so anyways, it was, it's just, it's just funny how like, all these women are like interconnected. It's, it's crazy. They're all coming. We're all coming out of the woodwork, right? I know. No, but this is great because as you know, and I'm super, super excited that there will be a women's tour next year. That's shorter, but it's a start. Yep. So what about, tell us more about the film. So um, again, COVID has, has made this really hard because um, just haven't been able to get to Europe yet, but we did film, so Marianne Martin, we did film her um, in Boulder, Colorado. I had to, it was interesting, the first time I've done this, I hired a crew in Colorado and they, we filmed the interview, sit down interview with her and we filmed her outside cycling, but I directed remotely um, through (laughs) through my laptop but it worked out really well we got some extraordinary footage I've been wrangling with Inna which is the archive for French uh, television and radio because they have footage from the tours and so I've gotten to um, I've looked at the footage that they have and we we have a just a super basic draft trailer together um, for the project, and we are hoping, I know this won't come out till October, but um, I have a ticket to France. <laughs> We're supposed to go over there and, and film, COVID permitting uh, shortly, uh, possibly at, um, I want to film at Ventoux because I need to get a classic Alpine finish. I'm looking forward to working again with my uh, collaborator, Dan, who lives in Lyon and trying to make contact. Uh, We've been uh, going back and forth on WhatsApp with the great Maria Canines in Italy uh, because we want her to be part of it. I don't just want this to be like the Americans who rode in the Tour de France. I wanna, because it was, um, you know, such an international endeavor and Marianne Martin said for her, it was just great because after it was like this real sisterhood, like after each stage, she said the women would come up and go like, good competition, good competition. And um, to really capture that esprit de corps that, that happened. Again, I don't want the name of the film is called Uphill Climb, the women who conquered the Tour de France. You know, I, do, I cannot let them be forgotten. Wow, so you're off to France and you're going to finish it up. Yeah. Well, I see a lot of girls going over to Europe. I don't know why you're uh, having a hard time. I just saw one when a Canadian cyclist heading over to Brazil or uh, Belgium. I, I think it's going to be okay. I, I do. Um, but just a lot of, I have to say, you know, um, 
just the logistics of putting of putting this together of coordinating um, my my flights and hiring a film crew. We're also trying to get um, a meeting. I have a my production partner is is a is based in Paris. He has a, a French production company and he's been extraordinarily helpful. And we're trying to set up a meeting with ASO. My goal there is I know they're not going to give me any money, but I want them to give me my blessing that they won't get in my way with making this film. And really, there's something kind of, I'm like, it's such a love letter to, to cycling and to ASO for their, they were so forward looking in the 80s to create this tour and to put women on an equal, equal footing. I mean, if you Google, you'll see pictures of the, the Tour de France winners on the same podium as the men side by side in the yellow jerseys, Marianne Martin has the same trophy that Laurent Vignon has. I mean, right? Um, amazing. What happened, right? Like, how did it backpedal so much? Um, I think it just, they uh, couldn't monetize it, perhaps in the way that they, they thought, maybe became too burdensome for the, um, for the logistics of it. I think at the 80s, in the 80s, like women were not as big into cycling as they are now like can you like agree I didn't get my road bike until like 91 did I I mean besides you know riding the only thing my father brought home you know to to town but I at I think back in that in those days women were not as in tune to sports like men are um but now the like you know 20th century we've got a lot of women racing a lot of women on bikes a lot of women you know like online riding and mm -hmm. talking more about cycling racing and i think like this is probably the best time if any in the last two years that an exorbitant amount of women have gotten on the bike and are more interested in cycling. It, that's my opinion yeah, after the last 20 years. You would, you would say that because, and maybe it's different in Canada or I'm just not paying as much well, maybe. attention, but, or maybe it's because I raced in the eighties and I felt like, you know, um, that was the gold, the golden age. But I can say like, even in the U S there aren't that many like we used to be able to just find races every multiple races every weekend I and mean, now you have the you know gravel is really big and i do agree that you know the online racing is is huge and i have um i have women i ride with here you know in my community now um but um and i may not be you know i'm 60 <coughs> years old <laughs> you look fabulous <laughs> <laughs> Riding keeps us young. No, oh, it does. The same, the same age. And well, I collagen say, doesn't hurt. <laughs> where's my ring light when I need it? That's right. <laughs> but, Did you know um, on Zoom there there is actually a feature for a beauty feature? There is. I don't know if my version of Zoom has it. The other, the, is, do, I have the free version, so I don't know if it has like the anti. Oh, I don't know. I do pay for mine. 
it's but it's a setting but you can you should go and check it okay i'm pretty sure i have mine on <laughs> takes away all the wrinkles but i'm 63 there i've said it. i've come clean well you look fabulous for 63 Thank you and um so i'm super excited about it but yeah i think like now is you know cycling maybe not cycling race but like you said gravel is 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 coming up i mean so whether it's gravel whether it's road women are getting more to the start line it's always been a struggle because i raced from 2005 to 2013 yeah. and uh women on the start line it wasn't always a massive group um but then again i was here in quebec and the problem here in quebec um has been has changed in some of the other provinces is that the categories have not they've not they've they've not changed them women there are two categories sorry three senior mm -hmm. one two masters 30 plus 30 to 40 and then 40 and above so you got three categories for women so there's absolutely no way for women to develop as athletes in our province and i'm going to try and change that this year um like on like the us they have categories one to four or one to five yeah. five being like you just first time on the yeah. you know on on the start line and you have your levels to progress to which is good because we all need those um to progress in in performance and uh experience to move to the next level and Ontario just adopted it I'm like what the hell is going on with my province like <laughs> why are they still sticking to these stupid categories I hate to say like men have like five mm -hmm. you know and I'm like okay I'm I'm just gonna have to suck it up and and get a couple people and go to the AGM and raise a little shit because if I want to get back into racing, it's going to, I'm going to suffer. And if I want to bring other women my age, I'm 50 to mm -hmm. races, then it's so unfair. And, um, and it's, and it, it doesn't motivate anybody to do, to come back or, you know, to, to stick with it, in my opinion. You know, so it's really hard to try and convince women to develop themselves as a cycling racer at like at any age, because it's you know you turn twenty and you're you're racing with like seniors one two those are like pro levels mm -hmm. for ten years. I mean, it's, you know, you know, it's good to, for maybe one event, <laughs> but you know what I mean to be at that. Anyways, that's what's happening right here right now. I think it needs to change, but anyways, so when is your, your, when you, um, when do you suspect your uphill climb movie is going to come out? Well, I mean, ideally it should debut at the same time as the, as the women's tour in, in 2020. Oh, I said ideally, let's see, let's oh. see. Let's see. Well, that's a good goal because that would be amazing to have that showcase like the very inception of yeah. the women's tour de france and absolutely the new one i think that's a great fabulous goal i do too I'm for you thank you thanks and if i can help 
I'll I'll connect you with Debbie. Yeah, she might be a good person. And also, you know, Marilyn Trout, who raced the tour, she lives in uh, Colorado now. Has been really helpful. I'm blocking on what her racing name was. Um, Valerie Simonet from France has been has been great. Um, uh, who else? Uh, Janelle Parks Graham, who lives in Australia, but she can't leave us. We. So the idea was to get uh, assemble a core group of women, uh, kind of in a reunion ride at one of the classic Alpine finishes, uh, film that. But um, there are just so many. Seem like there are too many roadblocks now to kind of fully yeah, realize that. Um, but I'm I'm working on it. Um, You're gonna yeah. have to cut and paste them in, you know. Just <laughs> like. I have to tell you, the main problem is like, I have not been able to raise the money that I wanted. So this, give me money so I can afford, I, I can't just ask, you know, like, hey, meet me at Mount Bontu, you know, I, right. ideally it would be like, I can, I can pay your airfare and a night's lodging so you can come here and be, be filmed. I mean, I think that's really, really only, only fair. Right now we're planning on having Inga Thompson we're going to hopefully film uh, a sit-down interview with Marianne Clunier in Paris. I'm trying to convince her to come to Ventoux. Uh, trying to get one of the uh, French cyclists to also join us on, on Ventoux. And then at some point, get over to Italy and interview Maria Canines in the, in the Dolomites. She lives in Alta Badia, which is like a five and a half hour drive from Milan. I mean, I was like, oh my God, you might as well be living on Mars. <laughs> so it's, you're gonna have to do some fancy editing i think jill <laughs> we'll be able to i'll find where there's a will there's there's a way i will figure this out give us a little video of you coming down a hill climb and then you'll take that and have everybody kind of coming off their hills and then have them all standing together i don't know <laughs> there'll, there'll be a way of doing of, of doing this it doesn't have to be um, it doesn't have to be perfect, but I, I want some version of this film to uh, to be made. It's kind of like and then I can um, I don't know, then I can rest. <laughs> we'll get it done. Then you'll be able to enjoy your summer. So I am super uh, I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to have to go and watch these films. You, um, you. Everybody should go in and and uh, check out Broken Trust and Tainted Blood. Um, and then keep your eye on Jill for uh, next spring's uh, release. And I want to thank all of our listeners for coming out and listening. And uh, please share this with somebody. And if you happen to know someone who can help Jill with her uh, funding project, to get this done quicker. You're looking for money, right, Jill? I'm looking for money and, and connections. I'm looking for French intelligence to give me complimentary access to that archival footage. Oh, <laughs> there we go. She's made a special ask. Special now, ask. Um, where can everybody find you? Like, I'm going to put this up in the show notes, but is there a special place where you want people to follow you? Uh, you can follow me on, I have... Um, a site on so Facebook there you can 
follow me there personally or for, I have a site for my film, Broken Trust and for Tainted Blood. Um, I'm on Instagram. And then of, of course, each film has a website where you can watch the trailer and find out more. Brokentrustfilm.com, taintedbloodfilm.com. And then you can, there's a contact form. You can get to me there. So pretty easy to find, not hiding. Just Google her like I did and you'll find her. <laughs> there you go. That works too. <laughs> and don't forget to follow me on Instagram. Now, I just want to thank everybody and don't forget to share and provide, um, maybe give us your biggest takeaway. Go watch this on YouTube where you can see us both and have yourself an amazing day thank you so much jill i am so honored to have been able to talk with you and now know you and uh i will be um thinking about you and maybe maybe i can help you with some contacts or two so with that thanks a lot jill oh thank you have a great day bye everybody thank you so much for spending this time with me on the secrets from the saddle podcast learning more about sighting people, places, and things that make cycling such an exciting sport. I am so glad you stopped by today. Please leave me a review if you feel so moved to do so. I would love to hear your feedback. And if you could take one second to share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it, I would be forever grateful. Also, if you could please leave me a review if you feel so moved by going to iTunes and leaving me an honest thought and an honest comment telling me what you think and most importantly, tell me what you'd like to hear more of. It would really help me to bring more great, inspiring cycling stories to you. Until then, have an amazing day. Make sure you ride your bike. And don't forget to visit my YouTube channel if you'd like to see the full version of this podcast live.